During our recent mission to the Von Doom space station, we were exposed to as yet unidentified radioactive energy. We do not know much more than you do at this point. A new day is done. The day of the Fantastic Four. It's movie review in time. With now playing's Fantastic Four retrospective series. There'll be an explanation for this. There's always a scientific explanation for everything. Part of the now playing Marvel comic movie series. This is going to be fun. Hosted by our fantastic movie reviewers, Stuart. When have I ever asked you to do something you absolutely said you could not do? Five times. I had it at four. Well, this makes five. Jacob. We're either all in this together or we don't move. And Arnie. Now we're more like the Terrific Three. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as they review each Fantastic Four film, from the unreleased Roger Corman original to the rise of the Silver Surfer. Now picture that, but everything. But be warned, these podcasts contain spoilers, mild language, and cosmic rays that may mutate your DNA. Listener discretion is advised. Susan? Let's not fight. No, let's. Today we're discussing The Fantastic Four, starring Alex Hyde-White, Jay Underwood, Rebecca Staub, Michael Bailey-Smith, and directed by Oli Sassoon. Yes, I mean it. He's the heir to the Vidal Sassoon empire. I'm not even joking. Are you serious? Oh, no. This is Arnie, your gravelly host of Now Playing. If he doesn't look good, this movie don't look good. Uh, this is Stuart in L.A. It's podcasting time. <laughs> this is Jacob. <laughs> and we are here discussing a movie that never was released. This is a now playing first, folks. Marvel's <laughs> taken us into all new territories. First a once shown TV movie and now a never shown movie. Yeah, the story behind the making of this is probably more interesting than the movie itself. I find it totally fascinating, and it's a movie I've known a lot about, even though I know almost nothing about the Fantastic Four. We should probably start with the comics, as we want to do with the new franchise tree spinning off from the Marvel Universe. But yeah, it's a great history of how they made a movie they never intended to release. And speaking of the comics, I'll say, Jacob, I'm very interested in hearing... What makes the comics interesting? As I say at the beginning of probably every series we do here, I was big into Hulk. I was big into Spider-Man. There were all these times they crossed over with the Fantastic Four, and I never found these characters really all that interesting. They seem very bland, very stuffy, kind of kitschy. Can I make a guess without any knowledge, but I'm just going to make a guess from this? Is this the oldest Marvel characters? Are these older than Spider-Man and Hulk? Because they do feel of a different era than X-Men, even though they're kind of like X-Men. They are before the X-Men. They're before Hulk. You know, here's the thing with the Fantastic Four. It's kind of like Howard the Duck to really appreciate Howard oh, the Duck, God. the comic. I think you had to read that comic at that time to really understand why the Fantastic Four. I mean, they're called the first family of comics. Fantastic Four number one came out in 1961. You had characters like Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman, and they were like these demigods. Perfect. They didn't worry about where they were going to get their you know money for their dinner. They didn't have to 
worry about, you know, catching a taxi ride to get home or something. They could fly. And Fantastic Four comes up. And it's interesting because it was influenced by the Justice League of America. It's when all the DC superheroes teamed up, became this huge team book. It's like the first team book. You know, we're building up to the Avengers, which was Marvel version of the JLA. Well, you had the JLA team up of all these big superheroes. It was a huge seller. And Marvel caught on to this. They're like, JLA is selling like crazy. We need to come up with a superhero team. And so Stan Lee and Jack Kirby come up with the Fantastic Four. And it was an instant success because, yes, it was a superhero team, but the big difference here was how grounded these characters were in real life. You know, we talked about the X-Men and, and X-Men number one came out two years later, how the X-Men were superheroes that didn't really benefit from having powers. They were outcasts to society. That all started with the Fantastic Four. You know, Fantastic Four number one, they're the superheroes that don't quite have a grasp on their powers and they're actually destroying things. They fight with each other. They don't get along. They don't have secret identities, which was a huge thing. They never put on masks. Everyone knew them as the Fantastic Four. The Thing and Johnny Storm, they're always fighting. You know, The Thing hates that he has superpowers. There's a hint of jealousy because Reed Richards is going to get Sue Storm because he still is a good-looking guy and Ben Grimm has been turned into this horrible thing. I mean, that in the 60s, that was groundbreaking stuff. No one had thought about writing tragic superheroes before. Really, this is the comic that made Marvel what it is today, where you have characters like Spider-Man and he's, you know, Peter Parker, the poor college student trying to scrounge up money and save the world at the same time. I mean, this is what really defined what Marvel has become today. And that's why the characters, I think they've kind of faded and that's not as novel today. But it was huge in 1961. I mean, it was so big that when X-Men number one came out two years later on the front cover, they say in the sensational Fantastic Four style, they're trying to recreate that success. And yet, I would say as the non-comic book reader, that X-Men world feels entirely 1960s, and Fantastic Four's world feels Eisenhower, space race, idealistic 1950s. It doesn't feel like it was made for the same generation. I'm surprised that there's only two years between them because they're both mutants, you know, with crazy powers. To me, these Fantastic Four people, they're kind of too wholesome for me. They don't really seem to have the problems that the X-Men did with their powers. They seem like, okay, yeah, I can bend, I can catch on fire, whatever. I, I can roll with it. It's cool. It was made at a time where we wanted to go to space. Science and nuclear power were going to change us and we thought that was a good thing more often than not. It's funny you bring up the space thing because that's how they get their powers. They go on this rogue mission to Mars because they got to beat the commies to space. Of course. <laughs> they take the spaceship and they try to get to Mars and the cosmic rays give them their powers. So yeah, it, it is ground in that whole you beat the commies, the space race thing. Stuart, I'm gathering that your opinion the Fantastic Four are based on these movies. Not yeah. entirely true. Actually, there was a cartoon series. They would alternate. Sometimes it would be Spider-Man. Sometimes it was Iron Man, sometimes it was Hulk, and sometimes it was Fantastic Four, and that ran in the 70s. I did see that. I know those characters only from that and in these movies. And again, I'm not the comic book guy, but I did go back and read a few of the first issues of X-Men, and I was surprised how blatantly X-Men was a carbon copy of Fantastic Four in the 60s. And Stuart, the X-Men that came to be popular, came out in the 70s, and that's when Chris Claremont took over. X-Men went into hibernation. It failed understandly mm. and it was a blatant ripoff beast in the original x-men was basically the thing only instead of rocks he was just 
skin, but he was just the same kind of thing. And you had, instead of a fireman, you had an ice man. Yeah. It was just terribly carbon copied. You know, when you look at when X-Men started, yes, it started in 63. When did X-Men become popular? 15 years later. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Fantastic Four, that's what it wanted to be. It advertised it there right on the cover. Mm, I just don't get from these characters that they have the same angst that the X-Men do. I would say the only one that would would be Thing, who hates what he's become. Yeah, but we can definitively say Fantastic Four came first. They are the premier series for Marvel before Spider-Man, before Hulk. But after Captain America, because he was fighting Hitler. Mm. It's telling that they call the Marvel Universe the 616 Universe because in June of 61 is when the first Fantastic Four came out, though. Yep. It's really what built Marvel. It all comes down to the Fantastic Four. It was a totally new way to approach the superhero genre in that time. Well, we'll get into that, I guess, when we talk about the movies. But yes, there is this film, this film that we weren't supposed to see, let alone review. If you're into comics, you've heard about this film. It's legendary. No, if you haven't heard about comics, but you're into indie movies, you've heard about this film. I used to subscribe to Film Threat Magazine, which in the 90s was a fan rag for all the Sundance guys and, you know, Tarantino. And Fantastic Four made the cover of Film Threat Magazine. They were promoting this as the indie version of Batman. That the what? Indie world, the indie world was going to take over and do what Tim Burton couldn't do with his $40 million. So this was the kick-ass of 94? Is that what you're saying? Sure, but there was a lot of digs at Burton and at Batman. There was a lot of talk about how he was only focused on the villains and that his Batman was dull and that these people understood the comics and they were made by comic fans. That is true, and I did read several other articles from other magazines, too, from around this time. What I read was they got people who would work cheap because they liked Fantastic Four. They were saying, can Marvel make a good film and talking about how one of the people on the set said they should call this the average four because we don't have the money to be fantastic. And even at the end of the article, it says there's hints this film may never be seen. Of course, it's never said, but the horrible Marvel thing that they're talking about is Captain America that had received the scantest of releases a couple years ago, and I suppose the Dolph Lundgren Punisher, too. Yeah, it wasn't the Punisher, it wasn't Howard the Duck. I mean, wasn't every Marvel film up until now bad? And even maybe now, when we get to Fantastic Four? (laughs) I find it very interesting, this whole thing. For the listeners who don't know, I think before we even get into the plot, we should run down the story of this. Oh, yeah. It's good. And Stuart, correct me if I get any of this wrong, because I've gathered a lot of sources, but so much of this is hearsay that you don't know. But in 1986, think where superhero movies were. We had Howard the Duck. Superman was about to quest for peace. Marvel wanted to sell comics any way it could. The Hulk was many years off the air. Marvel thought anything they could do to get the names of their heroes out there would be a good thing. So they sold the rights to Fantastic Four for $250,000. Yeah, no, for cheap. And let's face it, comics were not cool. And I really think a lot of that can be put onto their cheesy TV versions. That Batman and Wonder Woman, and it just seemed like something that was kitschy and not to be taken seriously. Superman being the sole exception, there were not comic book characters up on screen that were succeeding. The rights were bought by a guy whose name I'm going to butcher 
Burned Eichinger. And he's a producer who has a company, Nui Constantine Films, who you actually probably know, listeners. He made The NeverEnding Story. He made The Name of the Rose. He makes Resident Evil. He's still working, still making money and making movies. It has been for over 20 years. And he got the rights to Fantastic Four and a six-year license. And he wanted to make a $40 million epic. But of course, in the 80s, he didn't pay much for it. He didn't frontline it. And then, yes, Batman came. And all of a sudden, he realized he was sitting on presumably a gold mine. And he wanted to raise $40 million to make this movie. $40 million is what Batman cost to make. And almost what Howard the Duck cost. And what I read was he just had to be shooting as of December 31st, 1992. He didn't have to finish it. He just had to have principal photography underway by that time. And then he could retain the rights and do more with it later. And I think he played chicken. I think he really thought Marvel was going to extend his option. By the time that he realized, no, I'm really going to have to roll on this, he didn't have a whole lot of time to put any movie together. I mean, they had to scramble. He's like, how am I going to make... A Fantastic Four movie with no money. I mean, he called the one person that could pull it off, Roger Gorman. And yeah, Marvel didn't want him to make the movie. They were playing hardball. They wanted their rights back because after Batman, movie rights started going for good money. Yeah, exactly. People realized because of Burton's Batman, the potential these characters had. And now, how much this film actually cost? I've read differing amounts. The lowest amount I read was $1 million. I honestly think that might be a little cheap. The highest I read was $4 million counting promotion. Because they did actually advertise this film and plan a world premiere for it and put trailers on other Roger Corman direct-to-DVD movies. So somewhere between $1 and $4 million was spent on what we're seeing just to keep the rights in the hands of this company. Yeah, I've seen the trailer for this. Did that ever come out in the theaters or is that just on directed video type stuff? Because I've seen the trailer. It says in theaters soon. Like who saw this trailer? What was that made for? The trailer was put before other Roger Corman studio direct-to-video items. But they did plan a world premiere of this movie at the Mall of America? (laughs) I don't know (laughs) why there. And it was going to be a charity event, which actually kind of pisses me off, because by not doing this, they robbed the charities of the income. And I'm always for charity, and so that kind of sucked. But this was going to be in a theater at least once, according to the plans. Yeah, and and that usually happens. It's very that a movie is totally shoved. Even dogs find the scantest of release and there's one theater in the middle of nowhere that gets a print for a week and then it goes away. I mean, I think it's really puzzling that it wasn't a part of the option that they actually had to release it as a movie. But no, it was not. Well, here's the thing that I can't find any truth to. What I have heard everyone say is everyone who made this movie from Vidal Sassoon to all the actors and production people thought this was going to be released. Yes. The question is Roger Corman and Eichinger. Did they ever intend this to be released or was this just a ploy? I do know Eichinger was trying to raise money for the real Fantastic Four film as this one was being made. He was still out soliciting funds for a new version. But Corman was advertising this, planning a premiere. They'd actually started a Comic-Con tour, sending the actors to various cons to promote this thing. I wouldn't think that... If they truly planned to shelve it forever and Corman knew that, 
Corman's pretty cheap from what I'm reading. I don't think he'd promote a film that he knew wasn't going to be released. You exactly hit that much. This is all my speculation, but I can guarantee you this. Corman did not make this movie thinking he wasn't going to get his money back. That's his whole shtick, is that you give him a dollar to make a movie, and he'll charge you two to see it. He will get his money back. That's his guarantee. He would not have entered this partnership if he was not going to get paid. My guess is the Constantine film group that partnered with him knew that they weren't going to release it and weren't telling him. I'm not even sure if they knew it wasn't going to be released. They finished the film and were planning this premiere in the Mall of America. Now, what I also read was they finished principal photography. They shot this thing in three weeks. Yep. And then they stopped working on it. But, you know, Roger Corman had a big studio, cheap but big. I mean, they crank out the crap films. Yeah. The people kept working on it there on their own and thought, if we could just get this thing to completion, it'll get released. It'll get seen. And so after hours on their own time, editors were editing, composers were composing, nobody was ordering them to do it. And they took this film over the finish line on their own. Mm -hmm. And then they planned this premiere. Now, here's how the story goes, is that Avi Arad, who I've mentioned in several of our podcasts, was working at Marvel at that time trying to get these rights. He was apparently on a trip in Central or South America and wearing a Fantastic Four shirt. And some fan came up and said, I'm really looking forward to the premiere at the Mall of America. And Avi was like, premiere? What premiere? And found out about this, saw it, went to Corman and Eichinger and said, I know you both invested money in this. I will write you a check right now to pay back everything you've spent and more if you give me this film to destroy. Isn't this the plot to the producers? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I do think it's fantastic, pun intended, that Avi Arad is the one that gets to burn the negative. You know, like he's the one that is supposedly promoting Marvel in the movies, and his first step in doing that is to destroy the first Marvel movie in a long while. <laughs> well, how did we get this then? Again, those people who worked on it on their own time, obviously they've bootlegged some pretty nice masters of it. I have a nice little anamorphic widescreen that actually came with the score. Wow. I know how you love your scores, Arnie, so. Oh, yeah. You know this one's on my iPod. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's obvious that there's love and care into this, and I think it was true. I think it's the sheer technicians that just w did not want to see this go. You, there will never be a restored print of this. The negative is gone, but the bootlegs will live on as long as there's YouTube, I suppose. Yeah, and it's amazing. What's funny is I read another article that was written in 2005 when Marvel was doing all the press for the new Fantastic Four film, and they were writing about this old one, and they interviewed Stan Lee, and they got Stan Lee to agree to do a photo shoot with the original actors, and they'd gotten all the original Fantastic Four, and they were all ready for this, and Lee agreed. And then they tried to get Avi Arad on the phone to talk about it and got the runaround. And then Avi said, we're not looking back. We're looking forward. Refuse the interview. The next day, Stan Lee calls up and goes, "Uh, yeah, I can't do that photo shoot now. So they are still squelching this movie. Yeah, what's the thinking here? Is that if people saw this version, then it would turn them off from the real deal. They wouldn't pay money to go to the theater to see the big, lavish, expensive production. Because I don't think that's actually true. I mean, I don't think Halle Berry's Catwoman is going to stop people from watching Anne Hathaway next summer in Christopher Nolan's next Batman movie. I don't know that they would have squelched this under normal circumstances, but... The same year they were going to release this, 
1994, Amblin Entertainment, Spielberg's company, wanted to purchase the rights and Christopher Columbus had signed on to direct a $40 million Fantastic Four. Oh yeah, this was long in the works. That's why it took 11 years for another movie to come, is that he worked on this project an awful long time. Even through the Harry Potter movies that he did, he thought that he was going to be doing this Fantastic Four. So they had a real studio in the wings that year. Would they necessarily care 11 years after the fact? No. But if they had Christopher Columbus in 94 ready to sign on, you could see why they wouldn't want this out right away. And Constantine Films got their way. They are the makers of every Fantastic Four movies, including the next two in our retrospective series. They held on the right, so their plot worked. It might have been devious, it might have been horrible, some people's feelings might have gotten hurt, or they got unpaid for their hard labor, but the reason why we have two other Fantastic Four movies in this series is because they made this movie. But why don't we tell them about this movie? Because assuming that you don't buy bootlegs uh, off strange vendors at Comic-Cons, you probably don't know what the heck it is that we saw. Arnie, care to enlighten us? Reed Richards is a science student who, along with fellow student and BFF Victor Von Doom, are secretly running an experiment to harness the power of Colossus. No, not the mutant we saw in X-Men, but a comet-like radioactive power source that comes near the Earth every 10 years at the speed of light. However, Victor's incorrect calculations and refusal to agree to Reed's request that they run a simulation first has dire consequences as the machine overloads, electrocuting Victor. Fast forward 10 years, and as Colossus comes around again, Reed is still planning to capture its power, a quest he now obsesses over to honor Victor's memory. However, as Colossus isn't as close to the Earth this time, Reed must take to space, piloted by his meathead pilot friend Ben Grimm, and for grins, they take along Reed's crush Sue Storm and her brother Johnny. Okay. Reed is certain this time he'll be able to capture Colossus's energy as he has a giant diamond, and I mean giant, the size of my head, diamond, which will help cool the system. But unbeknownst to Reed, forces are conspiring against his plan. First, a masked mysterious monarch has lackeys watching the scientist, and a deformed dwarf called the Jeweler has his eye on the diamond to present as a gift to the woman he longs for, blind sculptress Alicia Masters. The jeweler replaces the real diamond with a fake, and when Reed and his crew attempt to harness Colossus's energy, their system overheats, causing their spaceship to crash to Earth and bathing the quartet in radiation. The four miraculously survive their crash landing, but soon discover they have superpowers that match their personalities. Hothead Johnny Storm has the ability to set himself on fire as well as shoot flames. Shy Stu Storm can turn invisible. Overworked Reed Richards can stretch his body parts. And Brute Ben Grimm has the worst of it as he becomes covered in an impervious rock rubber substance. The four are put in a hospital, unaware they're actually being studied by scientists in the employ of the masked stranger who wants to steal their powers for himself to become a god. The Fantastic Four escape using their powers and return home, but while Sue is enjoying their new powers and sewing absolutely horrible outfits for them to wear, Ben runs off to mope about his horrid appearance. On the streets of some nameless city, Ben is approached by a deformed homeless man who offers to take Ben to a place where his looks will be celebrated, and so they go below ground to the lair of the jeweler. But Ben discovers Alicia, who Ben had a love at first sight slash blindness moment with before his space flight, is the jeweler's hostage awaiting a forced marriage to the deformed thief. 
the masked Dr. Doom and his henchmen then invade the jeweler's lair intent on the diamond. Ben intervenes to save Alicia, but Alicia professing her love for him causes him to revert to his human form, and he's forced to flee, pursued by Doom's henchmen. On the streets, Ben's rage turns him back into the thing, and he returns to the other three, where Dr. Doom has contacted Reed and revealed himself to be Victor Von Doom, not dead after all, but horribly scarred from his attack. Doom demands that the Fantastic Four surrender to him, or he'll use his powerful laser to wipe out New York City. The four agree, and there Doom tries to steal their powers, but Reed uses his stretchy foot to escape, and they fight off Doom's henchmen. Doom fires the laser, but Johnny learns he can fly, because he is the boy who could fly, and uses his power to chase the laser and prevent it from destroying the city. And a showdown between Reed and Doom occurs at the top of Doom's castle, and a punch from Reed knocks Doom off the spire. Reed tries to save Doom from the fatal fall, but Doom's glove slips off, and Doom falls into the abyss, laughing maniacally all the way. And after the fall, we see Doom's glove still moving for some reason. Sequel! With New York saved and their powers restored, the film ends with the wedding of Sue and Reed, them driving off in a limo, Reed's elastic arm waving goodbye through the sunroof. Or giving us the finger, I'm not really sure. And that's the film. So, Arnie, since you now own the score for this film, <laughs> was this an original score? Because this music, it sounded like every, like, generic, like, 90s, like, Tim Allen's the Santa Claus and here comes the Santa Claus to save the day type generic family film music. Was this original music they used here? Oh, absolutely. But I don't think it sounded at all like that. To me, it sounded like the worst ripoff of John Williams Superman theme I've heard in years. I liked it, guys. I can't believe you're picking on the score. <laughs> of all the things to kick around, you're going to pick the score? I'll send you my copy. <laughs> We're just starting here. <laughs> I actually thought the score was okay. It was professional. I would have thought a production like this would have had one dude with a keyboard. That is true. It's not MIDI. Mm-mm. It sounds like they had real instruments. And that people knew how to play them. Hey, props. <laughs> in two, no less. Yeah, three weeks and two million bucks. That's not bad. In the score's defense, they had a year and no money. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> but true. I still think this whole opening, at first I thought I'd put in the wrong film. I thought I was watching a planetarium documentary during the opening credits. <laughs> With all the stock footage going <laughs> on. <laughs> I'm like, Earth, Moon, Mars. I What the hell? <laughs> what the hell? You know when it was remarkable? reminding me of it was amazing i was watching this and i'm like this feels like cutting edge tv in 1970s this <laughs> looks and feels like the wonder woman show or the incredible hulk but the weird thing is it was made like 15 20 years later like it's a time warp i'm like wow this would have been awesome in 1977 <laughs> i think it totally had a buck rogers battlestar galactica and i mean the original battlestar galactica vibe to it i'm telling you it took me a second viewing to put it together. I think this is supposed to be Superman. When Kal-El is traveling through the cosmos and we got to see all the planets and hear the John Williams score, they tried for a score that sounded like John Williams and they showed us planets. Yeah, no, I buy that. And, you know, it that's the trick. 
You didn't like the, the green screens in Wolverine, but Stuart, you're just you're okay with this because it it appeals to the seventies. You like that aesthetic, so I, I do think it's amusing, and I do think that if you're going to compare this movie to Wolverine, that's a little unfair. To Wolverine, I mean, I, no. I mean, these are talented people that had three weeks and no money to pull something off. I'm impressed. It looks like anything. You know what I was thinking about? You guys ever see? the movie be kind rewind yes 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 yeah yeah you know it's actually one of the few jack black movies i think where he actually works as a character i kind of like it it's it's a silly movie but the whole premise is that he demagnetizes an entire video store and he and most deaf have to go and make cheap versions of ghostbusters and all of the titles and like that's what this actually feels like i'm like oh this is like someone demagnetized the real fantastic four movie (laughs) and then they had to run out with like a buck 75 and figure out how to make a bootleg. I mean, it's just kind of sweet in that way. I mean, it's like a homemade Halloween costume. It just, <laughs> oh, isn't that cute? It just, it, it made me laugh. You're not entirely wrong because this was the same script that they'd plan on shooting for $40 million, just cut down to what they could do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, where's the real movie? Somebody go back to the tape and get the real one because this feels like an imposter of something that would have probably been made. And and I have to wonder, I haven't seen the later films, but it's the same production company. Is it really going to be that much different? Because I got to say, I'm not the comic book guy. I don't really like these characters. I don't really care about this world. It feels hokey anyway. I mean, you could throw all the money under the sun in it, and I'm not sure it would have fixed some of the problems I had with this movie. Whoa, whoa. Is that because of the characters, though, or how it's written? Because there's no characterization written here. I'm going to blame the script there. You can make the characters interesting. But the script doesn't choose to do that. Well, you know, let's talk about origins then. How faithful is this to the comic book characters? I mean, are Victor and Reed college kids that invent a machine that, I don't know, what happens to Victor? He gets shot with comet rays? Well, in the comic, they go to the same college together. Victor is a scientist that's also really into black magic because he was raised by gypsies and a fake Eastern European country. So yeah, there's some hokiness in the comic. I guess I'll bring this up now, is that Marvel, they started a new line called The Ultimate Line. It was for people that got into Marvel because of these new films. And it was, we're going to restart continuity. We're going to modernize everything. But they redid the origin of the Fantastic Four. They made them more interesting. It wasn't this hokey 50s, you know, we got to beat the Reds to space type thing. It's it's more interesting than the original stuff. So I think there's interesting characters here. You just got to do them right. It's impossible to know from this Threadbare production, and you're right, in a very lousy script, where it's very interesting. But the idea that, like, two orphan kids and their scientist friend and a jock get in a spaceship and fly off to a comet and get turned into mutants, that's just piss poor no matter who's making it. Yeah, and again, when they reimagine the Fantastic Four, they totally change that. I agree. I mean, this is a product of, you know, the late 50s, early 60s. What do you want? I mean, again, that's up to the writers. I don't have a problem with, in these films, them modernizing things, for them fleshing it out, because comic books from the Silver Age, from the 50s and 60s, weren't known for having great, round, deep characters. Right. So, again, that's up to the people writing the screenplay. That's up to the filmmakers to make these characters more interesting than these, you know, let's beat the Reds versions from the 60s. 
I'm kind of with Jacob in that I don't care if they change their origin story, but that's it. You're not going to take a comic book and make a movie that's totally different than that comic book, because then why would you do that comic? That's my point, is they weren't going to make the first movie of a Fantastic Four movie something radically different than what was in print. They weren't going to do that. They were going to follow what happened in the comic. And from what I know, this is somewhat similar. I didn't know that Victor and Reed went to college together, but I do know Reed takes some civilians into space where they all get bombarded with cosmic rays and gain their powers. And that's what we have here. Now, this Colossus thing is all new. Yeah, it felt like a Halley's Comet throwback. Like, there was a comet craze in the 80s, Halley's Comet. It only comes around every 72 years or something like that. And this may be the only time you see it in your lifetime. So everyone ran out and bought a telescope. And it feels kind of like that. Only Colossus apparently comes by every 10 years. What's the big deal? Every 10 years. I had to say... This was all told to us in order for my plot summary. I had to watch this twice. Because oh, God. Arnie. To find out what Colossus was. <laughs> yes, what is Colossus, Arnie? I still don't know. Yes, my suffering of watching this opening twice. Colossus is explained in, like, the first five sentences of the movie where George Gaines. Yes, Commander Lassar. Yes. I got excited when I saw him. <laughs> I thought I'd go through this whole movie and not see a single actor I knew. But yet the first actor they show was Punky Brewster's stepfather. Oh, okay. I didn't know. Also the man who starred in all the Police Academy films. <laughs> yes. Even the ones Steve Gutenberg wouldn't be in. And wasn't he in the TV series, too? Probably. <laughs> so he's there. He spends a lot more time explaining what the speed of light is in miles and kilometers than he does explaining what Colossus is. <laughs> but briefly in between nonsense, he says Colossus is a something in space that proved faster than light travel was possible because it is a comet-like ball of radioactive energy that moves faster than the speed of light, comes around Earth every 10 years, and on this first time is coming closer to Earth than it ever has before or will again. So why do they want to get the energy from it? What is that supposed to do? It, basically, they're green. They're trying to come up with an alternative energy source. <laughs> they think that they can harness Colossus and remove our reliance on foreign oil. And now that I'm paying over $4 a gallon for gas, I'm all for it. Really? Uh, every 10 years I can drive? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I might need to get the store before then. I'm just saying. There's so much jargon and techno speak. You know, I hate when people are talking science and it's clear that the screenwriters have no idea what they're even saying. They're just hoping that you don't ask questions. There's a lot of that going on. Prisms are melting down. <laughs> cores are, you know, demagnetizing. Who knows what's happening? Cartoons All are being drawn. <laughs> yes. All we're meant to understand is that Doom is what? Hurt? Disfigured? Killed? transformed what happens i took it as he was electrocuted and disfigured well they want us to believe that he's dead but they don't because obviously tim curry with a beard <laughs> and slightly uglier joe pesci <laughs> are talking about the body none of that made any sense to me there are these two guys that are always lurking in the shadows that refer to victor von doom as his highness even before he has been transformed into dr doom when he's just an average college kid they're there in golf hats playing chess watching over him him, and the second they have the opportunity, they take his body and, I guess, what? Give him the metal casing that allows him to live? Or, I don't know. It's, you know, I'm looking at you guys. You read the comics. <laughs> this isn't in the comic. I don't know what's going on in this movie. <laughs> I can tell you what they're trying to do. In the comic, Von Doom is the heir to the kingdom of Latveria? 
Is that right? Yeah, Latveria. It is a fictional Eastern European country. If you're a comic book geek, you could get a Marvel map of the world where it will show you where Latveria is. He was the ruler of theirs and studied in America. So here, I kind of took it as these were the Latverian Secret Service, a very bumbling, golf hat-wearing Secret Service. And when he got disfigured, they were taking him back home for proper royal medical care. I got that because I know the comic. None of that's in the movie, though. No, no, no. no. I, did, I didn't even hear the word Latveria. Was that? No, that's that's not in the movie. There's just a castle, okay. a badly painted map painting. Yeah. You had nothing. Things ever explained. So hopefully you read the comic because they're not going to tell you. Yeah, that's kind of a problem here. <laughs> yeah, much of this movie is borderline nonsensical. Here's another problem for me at the beginning of this film. How old are we guessing Reed is? I had that problem too because, first of all, why is he in a class with meathead Ben Grimm? Obviously, Reed is some super genius scientist. Ben Grimm is not. The fact that they'd even be in a class together is dumbfounding. That's why I was guessing, is he supposed to be an undergrad student? I mean, in the comics, he has had multiple degrees by the time he was 20. He's a genius. He's like the second smartest person in the world. Oh, really? I mean, there's not a definitive list of who the smartest person in the Marvel Universe is, but Reed Richards is considered the smartest, at least human, non-godlike creature in the Marvel Universe, and at least on Earth. And Doctor Doom is widely considered to be number two. So, Does he get points off for having that hoodie? Is that the problem? <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be, yes. But, you know, so you, you're expecting a meeting of the mind here and <laughs> no you were because you read the comics i was not expecting smart people here at all not at all no no sir <laughs> but here's the thing i don't know if this is like a porno where it's 35 year old supposed to be playing the 20 year old college students is he actually 35 is he doing his master or his doctorate work here because it gets real creepy as soon as we meet sue and johnny storm <laughs> where they're like 10 years old and he's in college. Like, I got a real creepy vibe at this moment. Well, I don't get the sense that he is thinking about Sue the way Sue is thinking about him, at least as long as she's a child. Well, when we jump 10 years ahead, though, he is, and there's still a huge age difference. Like, But it's not criminal. It's not criminal, but it's creepy. I took it as he was an undergraduate which makes the graying of the temples really odd for somebody who would be at oldest in their early 30s. Yeah, that's what I took it to be. And I didn't know he was supposed to be that bright. I thought that it was acceptable that he was in a college class and learning all of this alongside people in the football team. I mean, I didn't get the sense that he was that good. I mean, if he was that good, why didn't the machine work? Well, he tried to correct it. It was Victor that didn't want to make the corrections that he pointed out. Oh. Which makes it weird why victor later on blames reed for the whole thing but we'll get to that okay well yeah i agree with you it's very convenient and weird that they're living at a boarding house with this woman like mrs storm's boarding house mrs storm is the one that eventually names them the fantastic four she's the one that gives them the label because isn't it so great that uh, this strange man is taking my children off to space like really <laughs> i think it's the pedophile pair because <laughs> yes. i would not yes. allow my daughter to go in a rocket ship out into the cosmos with this man no way 
he's got to be in his 30s. She's what, 20 at the oldest at this point when they jump 10 years ahead? I would say 22. Yeah. Okay, it's still an uncomfortable age difference. That's all I'm saying. You aren't wrong, but more importantly, he's taking them to space. That's what I'm saying. Like, you would not <laughs> allow your loved one to go off with this man. You, you mean your mom wouldn't respond, well, look at you, the Fantastic Four. <laughs> no, you would not allow your loved one to go off into outer space with a man whose greatest invention blew up somebody. You, just, you wouldn't do that. In an experimental spacecraft. No, yeah. Uh, no, you send the chimp first. You I, send any <laughs> anyone else, you know. Maybe Johnny wants to go, but you would not let Sue go. You just wouldn't do it. I want to know, though, why were they there? I don't – I get why Ben had to be there. He's the pilot. Reed had to be there because he's the scientist. They had to go to space because Colossus wasn't coming close enough to Earth. What was the reason given why they took Sue and Johnny? I think that they wanted to show them a good time. I don't know. It seems like it's Ben's idea, but it's like, that's not a good idea. No. That's like, let's take my six-year-old to go buy some hardcore drugs. No, what it is, is Reed wants to bang Sue. So it's like, you know, you want to impress a girl, hey, come check out my Corvette, baby. He's got a rocket ship. I mean, what's going to beat a rocket ship to impress a girl? Surviving? Call me old-fashioned, but I'd actually want an astronaut to be in the spaceship with me. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that the only way this could have ended is in a fiery crash. But it does, so that's okay. Yes, because of the jeweler. <laughs> is this a comic book creation, or is this something the movie made up? This is totally made up by the movie, which is confounding, because the Fantastic Four already have a perfect villain that they could have used. He shows up in issue number one of the original series. He's called the Mole Man, who's this short, little, ugly guy who, because he's so ugly, casts himself out and lives underground with ugly creatures and even has a valley of the diamonds where it's this giant valley of diamonds underground. Like, I don't know why they made up a character when there's already Mole Man that they could have taken that does the exact same thing. Well, so they did use the character. They just changed his name. I guess, which I don't understand. Why would you change the name? They're sticking to everything else, pretty much. Why go off here? It doesn't make sense. Neither does calling him the Mole Man, and he's not, you know, a mole. No. He doesn't have whiskers. I could see this. I could see where you might think you're confusing the audience. For real? This is where the audience is going to get confused? Not the fact that the jeweler wants to impress a blind girl, so he <laughs> uses fake diamonds. Yeah, it works every time. <laughs> Grope my diamonds. Baby, isn't it big? Isn't it hard? If she's blind, can't she use the fake diamonds? Is she gonna get the little jewel eyepiece to check if it's real? No, she's not. Really, the mole man that's the name that's gonna confuse the audience in this film. Yes, the jeweler mole man, whatever you call him, it's a curious foil for what we have set up here. Like, I was all prepared for Doom. I think everyone knows Doom just by sight. You know, he's gonna be in the movie. I did not know that that there was going to be this other thing. It seemed to follow the Batman formula, right? Certainly as the Batman series progressed, they always had two villains that eventually team up to fight Batman, right? So what confused me was that the jeweler and Doom have a common enemy. Doom's even observing the jeweler stealing the real diamond and replacing it with a fake and going, ha ha ha, this means that the mission will fail and I will get to 
claim Colossus as my own. So why does he eventually turn against the jeweler? That was the confusing part to me, was that it seemed to me that two bad guys have a common enemy. Because he needed the real diamond back mm-hmm. to make his laser, I guess? To steal the Fantastic Four's powers. Okay. That okay. diamond, in addition to being very pretty for a blind woman, <laughs> was also the only way to make most technology in this film work. Ah, okay. That was what I was missing, is that the diamond does everything. Any machine, any function you need, it's powered by a diamond. Got it. Okay. So they have a fake diamond powering the ship. Is that what's happening? Yes. The jeweler, who is remarkably agile (laughs) and can see the laser security system, does his little gymnastic routine and swaps the real diamond for a wonderful looking fake. (laughs) So there's a fake diamond, like... Why would the ship take off? Like, if that was what was powering it? Well, no, it, it, they don't need the diamond to take it off. I think it was the diamond that was going to harness the power of Colossus. They, that's what they store the power of Colossus in, I guess. Okay. No, it's a cooling device. Like, they power the laser through the diamond, and the diamond will keep the system from overheating, which is what it did to Victor. Wait, so did they use a laser to take off? Because they just used stock footage of a space shuttle taking off for the... Yeah, I, it wasn't even the space shuttle. That was like the Eagle has landed stock footage. And it's in the 90s, but they all are dressed up in like 70s sauna suits to go into space with little silver backpacks. Those outfits were hysterical. Those had to have just been left over from something else. You got it. That's another space movie from Corman, and probably from the 70s at that. Yeah, I cracked up when I saw those backpacks, because what were they for? Nothing was hooked up to them. It was just like, (laughs) space people have backpacks. Let's throw a backpack on them. And the spaceship they're flying, did you guys catch it has all the -the state-of-the-art devices, like, telepathic override no where did, was that on the screen no it was when reed is trying to say ben you gotta fly this you're gonna hate yourself if you don't fly this ship it's got all the niceties it's got telepathic override why didn't they use that then obviously they didn't need a diamond to land it they could have thought about landing it why did they have to go in space i just because of colossus They said Colossus was coming close to Earth the first time. He wasn't as close to the Earth the second time. All right. So they had to fly to him. The diamond was strictly to power the thing that was going to harness the energy. Mm -hmm. And when they turned it on, that made the ship blow up or that it just didn't work. And then Colossus made them blow up. I think the latter. Okay. Because they go into like a 2001 Space Odyssey time tunnel, and they're exposed to something. If they blew up, they wouldn't have reached the thing that was going to mutate them. So trying to follow any train of logic here, that must have been what happened. The device didn't work, and they became exposed to Colossus unprotected. And when they're getting bombarded with the cosmic rays, Stuart, you liked the opening. You said it was a good 70s thing. I was thinking of like Michael Jackson's I'm gonna rock with you video. Oh, totally, yeah. This would be totally acceptable if it were made two decades prior, but it's absolutely unacceptable in the 90s. Now let's talk about our Fantastic Four, shall we? (laughs) So we've got Reed Richards played by Alex Hyde White. With his wonderful gray temples, true to the comic, but really hideous. This guy has no charisma at all. I disagree. I think he's fine. I think the character's boring. I mean, it's like, this guy's worked. 
You, you can't say that he's a nobody. He was in Pretty Woman. I don't think this guy is that bad, honestly. He's been in films I've heard of. I'll give him that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, he's a working actor up until this day. Like, I don't feel like he has no charisma. I think that's a little unfair. I think that this character is dull. I'll give you that. But honestly, despite being the Fantastic Four, this doesn't feel like an ensemble piece to me. This is Mr. Fantastic's film. And... Alex Hyde White has to carry it, and I don't think at this point in his career he had the chops to do it. Maybe he does now, I don't know. This film? He doesn't carry this film? How much do you have to lift to carry this film? <laughs> I, I mean, really? Come on. Look what he's given. I just don't think you're being fair to actors that have been forced to put on these costumes and said, make it work in three weeks. I mean, come on. He's trying the best he can. Okay, he may be trying the best he can, but he's not good in it. I don't care whose fault it is. Yes, it's a crappy script. He had no time to prepare, but his performance, as turned in, whatever the reason, is not fun to watch. And it needs to be as the lead of this film. Okay. Is there anyone you did like? I was happy to see Jay Underwood. Again, I didn't think there'd be anybody in this film I'd seen. I looked at this guy and I'm like, I know him. He's Bug from Uncle Buck. No, that's not what I knew him from. The Boy Who Could Fly. Do you remember this movie? This cheesy 80s movie? My first date ever, I went to that movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, it was. And there was even a faux controversy because someone saw the movie and went up into the roof and jumped off. I wonder if somebody saw this movie and would set themselves on fire. (laughs) I did, actually. (laughs) Yeah, no, Jay Underwood, I knew him from The Boy Who Could Fly. Real cheesy movie. Don't even look it up. It's horrible. I also watched the Alan thick not quite human movies that starred him (laughs) yes (laughs) okay i I missed him so yeah i was happy again to see an actor i knew i think he had very little to do in this film again i don't feel like there's any performance here that's failing i feel like there are actors being failed by impossible circumstances i mean are you just because you know the making of this movie you refuse to comment on the performances turned in is that what you're saying because these performances these leads are uniformly bad is it just because of your meta knowledge that you won't damn them i think so i think you're right it feels like you know taking the lunch money from the special ed kit i mean it just (laughs) how can you do it it's like really like what were they going to do i i will give you this sue was probably the weak link of the four i felt like she was the least charismatic one and don't take my word for it she's the only one that really didn't go on to work again i think she did soaps Maybe that's where she belongs. Sue Storm, I tell Vidal Saloon was directing this film because she always had big hair throughout the whole thing. I mean, that's what I noticed in this film with her. Nothing else. I mean, the only person that sticks out to me is the jeweler, whoever that dude was. <laughs> you know, it's funny. If you've seen the trailer for this, he's the only one that gets any speaking lines in that trailer. And he, it, they're very poetic. We are the things that, you know, make dreams or whatever. I feel like he was the only one that got the movie he was in like understood what was going on. The Dr. Doom performance, most of the time it's close-ups of his mask and him clasping his hand. Like, I didn't know what was going on there. Yes, they weren't given much to do. The writing's awful, but you're getting paid to be an actor. Do something. It's your craft. (laughs) Here's the thing. The jeweler realized what I didn't until about halfway through this movie. And that's despite Tim Burton's Batman having been the superhero film of the era, whoever made this was looking at Adam West's Batman. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the jeweler realized it and was just trying to pull in the best Frank Gorshin he could. Yes. 
Yes. Totally the Riddler from Batman 66. What about the thing? Why does he have awful teeth? Like, why does he have teeth at all? Like, that's what freaked me out. Not the bad rubber suit. It was his teeth. He doesn't have teeth. He's a big rock thing. All I could do is I just kept having these like acid flashbacks to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> the 1990 film. It's almost like they took one of the animatronic Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle heads and those had teeth too. And they just spray painted it orange and painted on some lines. It's Roger Corman. They might have very well done that exact same thing. They'd have to steal the suit from Henson Factory. But again, really? You guys are going to pick on this suit? 2000 bucks. I thought it looked pretty good. Actually, I'm going to give the suit some credit. Thank you. I thought it would look okay. It looked okay. You know what? The first few shots where it's from like the shoulders up, I didn't think it was that bad. It's when you get the full body shots that I just can't buy. But when it, it was just certain shots, very limited in the scope of the suit. Yeah, it was okay. Well, here's the thing that was kind of throwing me in. The actor that's playing Ben Grimm is a big guy. He's a football player. And and believe it or not, it's Super Freddy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he was a Dallas Cowboy. He was Super Freddy. I think he's continued to work in, you know, as the big heavy guy. But he was cast really late. They didn't make the mold of him in time. They had to go off the stunt man. So there was another man every time Thing was on screen playing him. I think he's about a foot shorter and not nearly as built, even though they've got the padding and all that. Like, it feels like a noticeable difference in height when they go from Michael Bailey Smith to the stuntman in the Thing outfit. It just, it's disconcerting to me that suddenly Thing is a foot shorter. It does seem a little bit odd. I, I noticed that too. It's, everybody else is like, you have rocks. I'd be like, you shrank. Yeah, you shrank. And here's the other thing. That cartoon, does anybody remember that one? Did anybody see that 70s cartoon? I thought they had rings that activated their powers. And I know this much. No, that's, you're thinking of the Wonder Twins. No, no, you are thinking of the 1980s cartoon cartoon for The Thing, maybe late 70s. It was a Saturday morning cartoon. It was not Fantastic Four. It was just The Thing and it was Ben Grimm going through his day and he'd get into a jam and he'd say, Thing Ring make me The Thing. Yes! Are you serious? Rocks would fly in from all sides and now he was The Thing. That's it! You got it! I had no idea this existed. No, 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 that's true. That was what I most distinctly remembered, is that he could call the rocks to him like a gravitational force, and he could become the thing. Like, it was a choice. Yeah, this is so apocryphal. It's not even funny. But I was like three when I was watching this, so it had to be the 70s, because one of the first things I ever wrote in my life was I was sitting down writing letters to the people on Underoos, and I wrote, Dear Thing, Please Send Me a Thing Ring. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted the power to turn into rocks, Arnie? (laughs) I did, too. I thought the thing was cool. I thought he was cooler than Hulk. Well, that's because he still could talk. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what you're thinking of is the Thing cartoon from, I guess, the mid-70s. But, yeah, no, in the comics and everything, Thing is just kind of stuck that way. Okay. And this movie kind of screws with that, too, because when Alicia says, I love you, he becomes human again. And then when he gets mad, he hulks out again and becomes the Thing. Yeah, hulks out. It's never really explained explored or explained it's just there but it really feels like a bad hulk ripoff and there are times in the comics where he temporarily becomes human again there's one time he comes in contact with the cosmic rays that changed him and he turns back for a little bit and there's you know reed would every once in a while come up with a formula that would 
temporarily work. I don't remember ever seeing a ring thing in the comics, but I mean, there's no I love you moment, though, that changes him, softens his heart, and which softens his skin in return. I figured that there was a movie device that the people decided that, oh, the reason why they had the powers they have is because of the personalities that they have. And it begs the question, then, if you work on yourself and you change who you are, can you get new powers? Like, if he stopped working out, would he stop being the bulky rock guy? <laughs> he becomes the blob, then. Yeah, maybe the blob. You know, it's cheesy in that our weaknesses will become our strengths. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked it. It's dumb. You know, it's not from the comic. But whatever, for a movie at this time in the 90s, it's like when Batman finds out it was the Joker who actually killed his parents. It's stupid, but it makes sense in a Hollywood way. It's what you expect. Oh, I agree with you. I, although I think some of their, you know, Reed feels stretched thin, so that means he's rubber. I mean, it's a real leap with some of those. But I, conceptually, I kind of like the idea that it would be tied with who they are, that it's really their mental and physical state has is, is been altered both by this Colossus. It's fine. It works. I think they had to give some kind of reason, because the idea that they would be exposed to the same cosmic rays and have these radical different powers is the kind of thing you would only buy in a comic book from the 1960s. It just, it's not a movie premise. It just doesn't hold. Well, you know, they could have equally said that it activated something in their DNA like the mutants. I need more. And so I appreciated the effort, even though it's like so many of the plots in this movie barely thought out. I thought that was the most thought out part of this movie. I agree. (laughs) It is the most thought out. But not really. Like I said, was Johnny really a hothead? I didn't really see any evidence of that. Well, it's the problem. I mean, any bad piece of art just tells you and doesn't show you. And that's what they do in this film. They tell you that they were stretched thin and hotheads and shy. Mm -hmm. I mean. Yeah, it's crude. We never saw that at the beginning. Yeah. I never saw Reed working on any other experiment. He didn't have a job at night delivering pizzas to pay for his Colossus grabbing machine. You know, so... Yeah, he wasn't stretched then. He was rich. He could do whatever he wanted. Uh, we didn't see Ben Grimm beat anybody up. Maybe there was a character development scene for each of these characters in the original $40 million script, all of which got cut down to shoot this thing in three weeks. Sue was shy. We can at least agree that much. She she had a crush that she couldn't tell Reed about, but that's really the only one that has a follow through. She's lucky her mutant power wasn't her bad sewing skills. <laughs> I just love the fact that she would design a costume that bad, and then of course she can be the one to disappear. Oh sure. <laughs> Leave the thing standing there in a diaper, and you're just going to go away. That's convenient. I'm sorry, but budget or no budget, the outfits in this are abysmal. Agreed. Dr. Doom's robe. Is that terracloth? cloth? <laughs> It is. What I love is the mask doesn't seem to apparently fit all around his face. So they have like either a boa or a shawl kind of going around an ascot. I'm not sure what it was. But yeah, like on top of his having the hoodie, he's got like a little neck thing going on. I'm like, that is so fey. That just really, if you were trying for Darth Vader, you have just become Liberace. It just, it don't work. What's really sad about that mask is you can't understand half his lines. Not a word! (laughs) Not half. Zero! The actor has said, to one of our listeners out there, the actor has said he will dub his lines for anyone who will do it. (laughs) He wants so badly to have his lines be heard. 
So if somebody wants to do a phantom edit of Fantastic Four, call it the Fantastic Edit. <laughs> Look the actor up. No, thanks. That's because we need this special edition of the Fantastic yeah. Four, Corman. <laughs> I think this special edition is the next film in the series. I think it's when it's a real one. Okay. But it's so bad that I can't believe they used on-set sound for a guy in a mask. I'm surprised they didn't with Thing. Yeah, I'm sure that if they had more money, time, whatever, actor was availability, it would have been solved in like many technical problems but yeah the movie really suffers because i really struggle to understand what doom says the one thing about doom i couldn't understand his voice but my god his suit was noisy he'll never sneak up on you that thing rattled like i could not believe yeah i lost count of how many scenes they had of him of his hands just clacking together it (laughs) it seemed like there were numerous scenes of that what i don't understand it also is doom's plan Mm. he's trying to sabotage reed richards because he says he must get the discovery of Colossus first. So I guess 10 years wasn't enough for him to build his mask and his Colossus gathering rocket ship. And so he wants to sabotage Reed so that 10 years later, maybe he'll be ready. Oh, is that what he's doing? That's why he's sabotaging the diamond. Okay. Which he doesn't sabotage. He just lets the jeweler do it. But he was planning on doing it. His two cronies were waiting to go in and then they're like, oh, someone else is in there. And he's like, well, let's watch. He, you you didn't get this, Stuart, because you couldn't understand any of his lines. Okay. All right. I'm glad it made sense for you. <laughs> but yes, he originally was going to steal the diamond, but then the jeweler happened to show up. Okay. I'm not sure why he sabotaged. I I just figured because he's evil now. Because he has a mask. There was a line, again, two watchings. (laughs) (laughs) There's a line there where he said, I have to do these goddamn plot summaries. I have to understand this. And I did the best I could. He said that he must discover Colossus first, so he can't let Reed do it. But why? Because he's vain. He's so vain, I guess he thinks the song is about him. Is he vain? Well, that's why he wears the mask and the ascot. That's an improvement? (laughs) Over his scarred face, I guess. Yeah. Okay. See, well, that's the thing is I really wanted to see behind the mask. I really wanted to know. I thought we would get that. I mean, we always get that. You always get the unmasking. Like If they had the money for the makeup, I'm sure we would have. I See, I didn't know whether he was scarred or whether he was had a magnetic quality that made metal stick to him. I had no reason why he was in that outfit. I had no understanding about what he was doing or what his ultimate aims for Colossus were. I thought the machine was meant to drain the power from Colossus, but it ends up being a weapon against New York City. It is so cobbled together. Wait, see, that's a second weapon, I think. (laughs) He has a second weapon that will destroy New York. I don't know why he wants to destroy New York. He eventually is using it to hold New York ransom because it's not enough that he has the diamond and he has the thing's love interest. He also has to hold a whole city hostage to get them off their asses. Well, Reed works out of New York City, right? Correct. That would be where it is. What I love is the fact that he gives them 12 hours. I'm like, 12 hours? 12 hours to surrender. I'm like, you could catch a show. You could take a carriage ride through the park. Like, you could wipe out your bucket list in New York and be like, all right, it's ready. Go do what you wish. <laughs> 12 hours is an awful lot of time to just wave a white flag. But anyway, it was enough time for them to fly to Latveria or whatever the hell they went to and take care of some business. Clobbering time. And then he's got a third machine that will rob the Fantastic Four of their powers. Well, I thought that was the same machine that drained Colossus of power. I thought it was the same machine. Honestly, I thought it was a machine that could do everything. Slices, dices, <laughs> suck out your... Shoots freaking lasers, you know, all that. Yeah, you know. Make sharks smarter. <laughs> Perhaps. 
So we don't know why Doom's doing what he's doing. The jeweler kidnaps Alicia just because he loves her and wants to woo her. Oh, le- yeah. Let's talk about Alicia, first of all. Yeah, it's taken right out of a hello video, right? Oh, my God. That's what I was thinking. Lionel Richie here. Like, she has one chance encounter, feels his face, is sculpting busts of him. I got a little confused here. When the ship blew up, She's being commissioned to to make the commemorative statue of the dead astronauts. That's why she gets the death masks. I was really confused by that, too. <laughs> yeah. How did they get the death mask? Like, don't they usually do that after you're dead? Were they... Yeah, just from the corpse. <laughs> yeah, just mm-hmm. in case you guys ever happen to steal a rocket ship and die in an outer space adventure, let's do some molds of your face first. Yeah. But then there's some mention of helmets. So, like, maybe she was supposed to make them helmets to go into space, but guess what? They're already gone, and the helmets wouldn't have helped them anyway none of that made any sense okay so then jeweler sent some men in they got like this knockout gas spray that they spray in her face wait 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 it's the blind girl where they need like 10 guys to abduct her yes and use knockout gas and it's a pov shot (laughs) she's blind (laughs) (laughs) i didn't even catch that yeah, no, you know, they do one of those things where they, the screen gets all misty and then goes fades <laughs> yes, to black or whatever. Yes. Yeah, oh. yeah. I'm just saying. Okay, so he's going to make her a queen. Everything is about her. I stole a diamond for you. I'm making you a queen. I'm going to give you a tiara. <laughs> Love me. I'm the jeweler. Doom shows up and he's like, gone to her temple and been like, I'm going to blow her away if you take my diamond. This is again where I started realizing it's back in Batman 66 territory. It's just <laughs> stupidly silly. He's like, I'm going to kill her. And Doom's like, okay, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Why would Doom want her alive? He's going to blow up the whole city. It just, it's showing the jeweler is not in the same movie as the rest of these characters. (laughs) The jeweler is right there with Julie Newmar. Yeah. And they do, you know, have some loving throwbacks to Batman. Some of the scene transitions have the bam, pow kind of style. You know, they try with their limited budget of having like comic book panel-y kind of things go on. Doesn't the thing like have a fight where they just spin the camera vertically? Yeah. Yeah, after Doctor Doom captures them and they're going to get out of jail there. Yeah, they just, you don't even get the fight. It just spins around. It's because they couldn't afford it. Well, they had a big fight at the end of the film. I mean, they couldn't slice some scenes in from that. I Whatever. They had to save it for the end of the film, the exciting climax. Did he cost a lot of money for the thing to throw a punch in the suit? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't understand how a fight is. There's not a lot of choreography going on in these fight scenes. The thing doesn't touch anyone. I don't think that costume could touch anyone or the paint would fleck. Because you <laughs> notice what happens is the thing vamps and people do flips around him. You never see the thing <laughs> touch someone. <laughs> he crashes through some walls. He's voguing is all. <laughs> Well, okay, so then, you know, Alicia is in the lair with the jeweler or whatever, and Thing just, all right, Thing can't get girls anymore, that's what he's upset about, he's like running around New York trying to get a date or like get women. Yeah, was he trying to pick up two hookers? (laughs) I I, I was like, like, we see him running and he walks up to two women of the night, like in an alley, and they run away, like, were they supposed to be hookers? Because that's how I took that scene. I took it as hookers, and I know the Fantastic Four is based in New York in the comics, this was LA, this was clear not filmed in New York. Yes. This is if you walk outside of Corman's studio, the street. Yep, you 
probably exactly right. And I'm not entirely sure that New York hookers wouldn't have done thing if $50 wasn't <laughs> in it for them. But anyway, this is also that he can finally be discovered by the street people and taken to the jeweler. Does he not recognize her when he's down there? He doesn't see her. He's kept alone with the deformed people where he's going to be like their muscle king. Okay. And she is off in her little cell that only the jeweler goes to. Okay. Thing doesn't really get to see her until Doom comes down and jeweler brings her out as a hostage. Yeah, okay. Because I'm like, I know why she wouldn't recognize him. She's blind and he doesn't look the same anymore anyway. But I... I, <laughs> well, I if, she, if he doesn't look the same, what does it matter that she's blind? <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. Because uh, she recognizes him with his voice which is different than when he's been so i don't know how that happens oh interesting i didn't put that together but that is how she made okay that was my question it's like so how did she make that jump and say i love you and then when the love and the embarrassment of it makes him soft and human again why isn't he happy about that like that's what the whole conflict has been about is that i don't have my old body back but but they're shooting at him and have taken the woman he loved after meeting her for five seconds okay makes a sense as anything can we get to the end <laughs> Dude, can we talk about the awesome CGI? I love it! No, you can't say you love this. I, you can't. I actually like it. I'm going to decide with Stuart. I liked this. Yeah. It was stupid. It's, again, Roger Rabbit, but there's something about it, and I cannot verbalize it. But when the human torch goes flying off, there is something about it where it's not quite cell animation, but not quite realistic CGI. No, it looks like the beginning stage of CGI, where it's very rough. It's just the basic fractal structure before they actually render everything. That's what it looked like. Yeah, it's like Tron. It was like Lawnmower Man effects. It was all of like yes. the cutting edge of what they could do then. And it's just, it's so cheesy now. It's just so enjoyable. It's silly. And it just, it made me laugh. You're right. Lawnmower Man. That is a lot what I'm seeing here is Lawnmower yep. Man. Uh, yeah, and there's something about it that, yeah, it's quaint. And as a computer guy who is really into computer games and things, I'm going with this. I actually am. I like it as a screensaver. Does it work as part of the movie? No. When the human torch flies into space, how does flame burn with no oxygen? <laughs> well, he punches a laser. <laughs> how, how does he catch up to a laser that's going the speed of... I mean, none of it makes sense. I mean, that's fine. I, I can accept the fact that he punches a laser because, you know what? It's a comic book. I've seen people punch lasers. That I found quaint, but it, yes, it's ridiculous and stupid. The whole ending fight, though, really is painful. The invisible girl apparently develops a power of force fields. Which she has, but they didn't set that up in the film. It's all of a sudden she just does it, like, out of nowhere. Oh, really? It looks like a pot lid. <laughs> well, it's probably what it was. It's like she took some Tupperware and is banging people with Did it. Did I mention Roger Corman made this? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably right off the craft services table next to the generic soda. Yes, they had a caterer in this film. I noticed that in the credits, so they might have done that. Caterer slash special effects artist. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Reed's punching. This whole end fight, I can be forgiving to a point, but this was bad. I couldn't even follow the flow of it. I almost wish they'd have gone all the way into Batman and just shown, instead of trying to show us these extended punches, put a big animated pow on the screen. Well, you know, I said when we did Generation X that I suspected that these were recycled special effects. I really wonder if it's not the same prosthetic stretch arm that Stretch had. Uh, oh, yeah, I put that in my notes it looks like the exact same
same effect. I think it might be. Yeah. It's very much in Corman's way to save everything that he's done in any movie, give it a paint job and reuse it later. It didn't work in Generation X. It certainly doesn't work here. But very Batman scene. I mean, it's just like how the Joker gets punched out by Batman, Jack Nicholson, and falls to his death. And, you know, do you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? I feel like the climax is straight out of that. And that, yeah. Re- oh, yeah. And Reed is supposed to be our Batman. You're right. It is, doesn't feel like an ensemble. It doesn't feel like he needs the other three. This is Reed's show. And he doesn't work for me. The whole thing. And at the end, does Doom want to fall? Is Doom committing suicide? Or does the glove just slip off? I couldn't even figure that out. Well, the glove's kind of outfitted with razors, like Freddy style. So it's got its own thing going on. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. I guess it could be a sequel of just the glove. It would probably be at least as audible as Doom. (laughs) Puts a whole new meaning on Talk to the Hand. (laughs) So after the big fight with Doom, they jump to a wedding. Why? I would think that no matter what I got married in, <laughs> the last thing I would would put on my body, as much as I love this woman that made it, I don't think I would put on that. Like, you know what? Because the tux is too tacky? Really? She gets You're a gonna... wedding dress. <laughs> yeah. I think they're getting punked. Yeah, I really do too. Because that is something awful. Honestly, they probably only had one stretchy arm and it was blue. <laughs> and thing is thing, he's with Alicia, but he's the rock creature. So I guess she likes him that way. She's going to have to make a new mold. <laughs> It'll look like Lionel Richie. <laughs> yeah. I guess I also got a little bit of Ghost out of it, too. You know, Ghost had made pottery all sexy a couple of years prior to this. So I think they were playing into a little Demi Patrick Swayze. This is out of the comic, though, isn't it, Jacob? The blind sculptress. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You know, that's how he finds someone that could love him that can't quite seem. Yeah. This character? She's actually the daughter of a villain that they fight, and she ends up killing her dad and falling in love with the thing and accepts him for his rocky self. Oh, I had assumed that this was just something they came up with the last minute, right with all the other nonsense. So wait, I just got it. When she loves him, she helps him get his rocks off. (laughs) Okay, if if, if you need that pun. Well, I guess that leaves... (laughs) Jacob Stewart, can you possibly recommend the Fantastic Four? Jacob. I mean, look, the only way this is going to get a recommend if it's a guilty pleasure recommend, if it's so bad, it's good. And I love bad movies. I believe I recommended The Lost Boys 2, The Tribe. I don't mind a good bad movie every once in a while. Unfortunately, I mean, this is my first time that I've seen this and I've heard the legends and the myths for so long, how awful it was. It, Yeah, it's bad, but it's not good bad. It's not, you know, so bad you need to see it. Yes, there's a ridiculous suit. You know, seeing it in motion, I've seen stills of it. It, it didn't add a whole lot. The story here, it doesn't even make sense. There's no motivation behind it. Like, I got the bad visuals. At least I could follow the story. I couldn't even follow the story here. The story didn't even make sense. Um, I like the jeweler. That's about it. But no, I, I don't know. It just doesn't live up to the legend that is behind the film. I'm not going to recommend it. Stuart. Yeah, you know, I can applaud this movie for its thriftiness. I dare say that anybody could take a million dollars three weeks and make anything better than what we watched. But that isn't really a defense for what I witnessed. And that is a piss poor movie. And I agree, Jacob, not even a funny bad movie. It's, it's not a movie that has no reason to exist. It was a placeholder until they could make the real one. And as such, it can only be appreciated as, as I said, a be kind, rewind, sort of redo. Like, the cheap version of the thing that we're eventually going to do 11 
years later. But I'm curious. I, I really can't wait. I haven't seen the next Fantastic Four, the real Fantastic Four, but I'm curious to see same company, different budget, different time. Is it going to be much better? Like, that's what I'm really wondering, because I'm not convinced I like the Fantastic Four's characters. This movie certainly didn't sell me on that. Not recommend. You know, I wish that I had seen this movie before this retrospective series. I wish I'd seen this back when it was being bootlegged on VHS in the 90s, because I honestly believe something here. I believe that to the right audience, this could be the comic book geek's Rocky Horror Picture Show. I really do, because I watch Rocky Horror quite often. Marjorie's a big fan of it. We watch it at least once a year in theaters, usually. And what I see on screen here reminds me of Rocky Horror in so many ways, because you have actors doing things totally seriously. Nobody realizes what crap they're making. They think it's good, and they take it seriously, and it's so not working. The only person on this whole set who knew what was going on was the jeweler. He's the only one who's in on the joke. Every other person is taking this like they're going to win an Academy Award for what they're doing, and this is going to make them the next Michael Keaton and the next Tim Burton. And I think that with time, there is humor in this. I think the jeweler's little dance is hysterical. I think you could take a drink every time the thing's lips don't match his words. I gave the suit some credit. The fact that the thing's lips move at all and he has eyebrow animatronic expression is impressive on this budget for this time but it's still bad and i'm positive that there is a way to rocky horror this movie and i just don't know it well enough to pull it off i could see people costuming in these terrible bathrobe fantastic four dr doom outfits to go see midnight showings of this i really think it's there so to that audience, to the comic book audience who wants their own Rocky Horror Picture Show, to that sl sliver of a niche, I recommend this film. But on the whole, I cannot. I mean, it's just, there, no, there's nothing there. There's nothing good. There's nothing campy. It's not so bad. It's good. Mm -mm. It's That's the disappointment, isn't it? Is that we all thought we were going to be watching the worst Marvel movie, but this doesn't hold a candle to man thing. <laughs> no. And no. I, I wish I could find more laughs in it. And instead, mm. it's easy to rip on the production values and... Too easy. I would say too easy to rip on it. I think the acting is really bad. Stuart, you said it's not their fault. I don't care whose fault it is. The performances don't engage, but only the jeweler made this movie fun. And I don't even know what happened to the character. He's like left in his lair, I guess, again, for the sequel, he could return. There's not even a satisfying conclusion. It's a sad film, really. It's like an aborted fetus of a movie. So no, I don't recommend it. But I do want to ask you guys, do you think they were right to shelve it? Well, it's hard to imagine, like I said, Roger Corman being cool with that. I mean, he's never been about making great quality movies. I'm sure he's released much worse movies. So why not? Why not allow the audience to judge? I'm sure that Fantastic Four fans 
would want to see it no matter how bad it is. They would just want to see it because it's a movie and they've never seen these characters in a live action movie before. Put it out there. Make some money on it. I don't know what you'd stand to gain by making it a bootleg that no one profits from except comic book vendors. I think it would have matched what was going on with the comics market at the time. You know, Burton's Batman comes along in 89. Around that same time, you get the boom in comic book industry where they become collectibles. People think that's how they're going to get their retirement by investing in comics. By 93, 94, the comic scene, it it had crashed. The market had crashed. I I think this is a good representation of what had happened with comics in that short amount of time where it hit its peak and had hit its low point. I'm trying to think back to 94. This was not up to standards that, I mean, people would have just laughed this out. It would have been out for a week and that's it. And that's back when movies, you know, lasted. But Jacob, nobody's saying put it in movie theaters. I mean, that it would be unacceptable. There was a home video market, video cassette. Well, yeah, that's that's how I saw The Punisher back then. It was direct to video. I mean, it seems like there's some way they could have made money off of this, and why not? All I got to say is if Generation X can get on primetime television, this should have seen the light of day in some way. It's certainly no worse. I, I do find it worse because it doesn't have Matt Frewer's engaging performance. We're not going back there. (laughs) It's worse than Generation X, but yes, it it could have been on some cable channel. It could have been on USA Up All Night. Mystery Science Theater 3000? But they didn't want to undercut their brand, and I could understand that. If they put the movie out in, uh, in the next few years, but ironically, it took them 11. No one remembers this movie by the time 2005's Fantastic Four hit the screen. And that's what we'll be discussing next week. So thank you listeners for joining us for this Fantastic Four. And if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to head to our archive section where you can hear us talk about other Marvel Comics movies. We just finished up X-Men, including X-Men First Class. And before that, yes... The Marvel Misfits, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, and Kick-Ass. You can also hear our reviews of other movie series such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and more. And individual movie reviews including comic book movie like Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and others. Avatar. Green Lantern. (laughs) Green Lanterns. All this and more can be found in our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Stuart Jacob, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's been fantastic. I guess someone had to do it. (laughs) And until next time, flame on. It's not like you to run away from a challenge. Yes, you're right. Considering all that has happened here tonight, I'll take what I can get. I'm going to enjoy killing you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing Fantastic Four movie retrospective series. I will no longer serve. This is the end for us both. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another fantastic installment of this film series. That's not funny. What am I supposed to do in the meantime? And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear our reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as X-Men, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, Kick-Ass, as well as reviews of non-comic-based film series like Terminator, Transformers, Star Trek, Predator, 
and individual movie reviews such as Avatar, Inception, The Human Centipede, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. This is by far the coolest thing you have ever done! Be sure to join our forums where you can share your opinions on these films with the hosts and other listeners. Damn, I've been waiting to do that. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Same old Reed, always stretching, reaching for the stars with the weight of the world on his back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what do you guys think about trying to get an endorsement get us a private jet? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you. It's very generous of you. You could also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. What do you have against capitalism? Now Playing's Fantastic Four retrospective series is edited by Carlos and Arnie. Hey, don't worry about it. I'm sure between the two of us, we'll get it all done. Now Playing's credit narrations by Brock. He does the talking. I do the walking. Got it? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. This isn't a negotiation. It's a notification. The Marvel characters and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated and no infringement is intended. We're dealing with something highly resourceful. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Don't even think about it! Never do. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. It's time to end this. No, Vic. It's clobbering time. But so much of this is heresy that you don't, is hearsay, that you don't know what... So much of it is heresy as well, I would think. I did read another article that was written about this in what year did the next Fantastic Four film come out? Two thousand five, LA Magazine. Yeah. Uh, okay, you want to tell the story? <laughs> no, I'm just helping you. As a closer parallel, watching Return of the Incredible Hulk, where Thor is running on a beach with Lou Ferrigno, is not going to make me not want to see Thor. It will make me not want to see Thor, but I have no choice. <laughs> I'm a part of this series. And I'm going to see both next year, I think. So, well, something to look forward to. Flame on! Even through the Howard, or the Howard Potter. Even through the... Flame on! To the kingdom of Latveria? Is that right? Yeah, Latveria. <laughs> How far is that from Duckworld? Now, is Latveria a real place now? I, I thought that, maybe I'm thinking of Latvia. Yeah, <laughs> yes. No. Because I had a, I was thinking, is it Latvia or Latveria? Which one's the real one? Which one is the fake one? Okay. Yeah, so, you're thinking of Latvia. Flame on! Oh, no, he was Henry Jones in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Right, exactly. Like, the back I, and of his head in the flashback. <laughs> oh, I don't I don't know who that is. I mean, okay. Henry Jones was the uh, Sean Connery character. Oh, okay. Right, right. well, all right. Flame on! Now go back to Batman 66. Frank Gorshin, all the great. I was, I would have said the same thing, Arnie. 
I was actually not basing it on Frank Gorshin's performance. It was just the first actor who came to mind who was a Batman villain. I don't know. No, the Riddler. He played the Riddler. Total, totally the Riddler from Batman 66. Uh, We'll have to cover that in our Batman retrospective. The whole series? (laughs) I've got him. Me too, but I didn't know Stuart wanted to. We're down. Okay. And there's like, what, 130 episodes? Uh, there is a Batman movie, that. and that's all I'm committing to. <laughs> Batman 66, that's all I'm saying. You know, it was like our complaints with Wolverine, where they try to depict him as this bad guy who turned good when we never saw him be a bad guy. I mean, yeah. It, We're not going to talk us- about Wolverine anymore. We're not talking about Wolverine anymore. <laughs> Yep, you're probably exactly right. And I'm not entirely sure that New York hookers wouldn't have done thing if $50 wasn't <laughs> in it for them. But whatever. LA hookers are a little so, bit more discerning. No, I didn't get any. I, I'm not. I'm not talking about LA or New you York. You said New I'm York hookers. I think these, that's why I was making a joke yeah. there. Oh, okay. All right. The next Michael Keaton and the next. I'm really tired. What, who directed that? Tim Burton. All right, I do have a couple pickups of things that I'd like to bring up, and I don't know if they'll actually go in. But if you guys are out, I've got a few points here. Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> Back when we're talking about Doom's uh, talking, the actor had a weird way of, I understand you're behind a mask, and so you you lose the actor's biggest asset, his face. But he's doing more hand motions than Lamb Chop. Lamb Chop. <laughs> okay. You got to work in a lamb chop joke? <laughs> I mean, there's one point when he's like, what's in all of you is in me. And he's rubbing his tummy like Pooh Bear with honey. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I guess. Uh, really? <laughs> I don't either. I can't help you. You insist on making lamb chop and winning the poo references. (laughs) I don't think that those should be inserted. I'm just going to say that. This is like Arnie's Arnie's stand-up night. What are you, an audience or an oil painter? I didn't I didn't pre-write these. I'm just trying to come up with the analogies on the fly and I'm guess I'm tired. Oh, okay. All right, but that does help you a little. I did right. not pre-write. Every, every know the references already goes. I thought, I thought this was your bit. I thought these were your bits. I thought you had like worked up. I was like, really? Wow. No, my note my note says around? he's rubbing his tummy when he says what's in all of you is in me. The Pooh Bear was was I'm just trying on. That was an ad lib. Yeah, that was an ad lib. (laughs) Yeah, inspiration, (laughs) genius at work. All right, all right, right, cool. 